The following is a message from the pulpit of Parkside Baptist Church in Mesquite, Texas, led by Pastor Mike Wells. You find your place to sit down. Thank you. Ancient proverb, the squeaking wheel gets the grease. <laughs> Nobody mess with my coffee. I would like to tell you the three hardest things in the world to do. Pay a careful attention. Number one is to climb a ladder leaning toward you. That's really hard. Number two is to kiss a girl leaning away from you. That's really hard. Number three is to preach to Baptists when there's food waiting. But I'm going to do it anyway. You take your Bible, please, and find 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you would, please. Glad I'm saved. I'm glad the promises of God are true. There's nothing I can do or leave undone that will ever change that. <coughs> the promises are true. Someone said, how do you know? Because the book says they are. Psalm 100 and verse 5, For the Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endureth for all generations. I'm glad for that. I'm just very glad for it. See, uh, inspiration without preservation is really no good. Someone said, we have the inspired Word of God. Yeah, but they don't know which one it is. And we either do have it or we don't have it. If we do have it, it's in one book. All right, so we've got that settled. I knew you had that settled anyway. Let me read you a text. And I want to talk to you then about Paul's lesson in letter writing. Paul's lesson in letter writing. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 1. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, epistles of commendation to you? Or letters of commendation from you? You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in the fleshly tables of the heart. Note the question now. Paul said to you think I need a letter of recommendation? That's just funny to even hear it. Do I need a letter of commendation from you? We need to think about some things when you see that question. 
You see, we, we live today in a very complex society where things are constantly changing. And in the, quote, religious society, everybody's decided to start redefining the issues and uh, examining them again. And words don't mean what they used to. When I started preaching 56 years ago, somebody asked me what I was. I said, I'm a Baptist. That told them everything they needed to know. It means absolutely nothing now. Then I started saying, well, I've got to make it plainer. I am an independent Baptist. That told them everything they needed to know 50 years ago. It doesn't mean anything today. So I pumped it one more time. I said, I am a traditionalist independent Baptist. And today that doesn't mean anything. Words like Christianity. Why, in America, if you're not a murderer or a Muslim, you're a Christian. That's good enough. That'll get you in, you know. And we, we ought not put up with that, you see. So Christian, that has a very loose meaning. So Paul gives us a very straightforward, if you would, definition of what it means to be a Christian. He does it with the analogy of a written epistle, of a letter. And he says to these folks, you are a manifestation of what it means to be a Christian. If they need a commendation about me, they can look at you and see what a Christian is. He's, he's very plain about that, you see. You are a letter of what it means to be born again to be a Christian. Now, that is still true today. That analogy is still true. The Word is reading us, and they're reading us much more than they are Scripture. And they're getting a very poor definition. No. They're getting a dumbed-down version. Huh? Now, it's not, my, it's not my purpose here tonight to criticize, although I could if you get me on a tear, but I don't want to. I, I, I had rather suggest to you that something is going to have to change if we're going to impact the world the way that Christ wants us to. It's going to have to change. They're reading our letter, and they're saying, well, what do you have that we don't have? We react just like they do to adverse conditions. We treat our money just like they do. Uh, we treat our time almost just like they do. And so they want to, what have you got that we don't have? And the answer is, not much, evidently. We don't have much, evidently, you see. Our inward attitude is the same. Our response is the same. We're still writing a letter, but the ink is blurred. The words are running together. The definitions have been distorted. And yet there is no greater proof of salvation than a changed life. Than a man who's come from darkness to light. A man that's came out of the miry pit to take his stand on the solid rock. A man who came from sin to the Savior. A man who came from death to life. A man who came from hell to heaven. See, it's not so important to me how you sing your song. 
I don't really care how many times you can change keys in a song. I don't care how high you can sing or how low you can sing. I really don't care if you have all your theological jots and tittled in one place. I don't care how popular you are. But I do care whether a man can read in your life that God can bring a man out of darkness and into life. I do care about that. And we need to see that, that happen. Now listen, you can go ahead and get loose in your living. It's easy to do in the 21st century. You, you can go ahead and get liberal in your ways, but remember the letter's still being read every day. See, now you don't have to take the things of God and His, and His service as serious as you did at one time. You don't have to, but the letter's still being read. Uh, you don't have to feel the urgency to spend time with God like you used to, but the letter is still being read. You, know, you have sought out other activities now rather than spending time with God, but the letter is still being read. And we need to learn some things because the world is reading a very contradictory letter that is constantly being dumbed down. <clears throat> now, before you get all bent out of shape, I'm not interested in your letter being like my letter. I'm not interested in your margins being like my margins. It doesn't have to be like mine. Your heading doesn't have to be like mine. Your salutation can be somewhere else. That's okay with me. But all of us better be writing what's been approved of God down through the ages. We better stick with the stuff. We must learn to live within the margins of God's Word. It has to happen. See, we're living in a society today that says kick the margins out. Just, just kick them out, you know. Uh, change the print. I'm sorry, we call it a font. Change the font. That in itself is a downer. Print to font. Make the letter appealing. I hear it all the time. Times are changing. We have to change our church to make it appealing. Make the letter appeal. Make it entertaining. A little less content now. Let's not have all those long Bible lessons and preaching. You say, just give us some flash and cash. That'll do it. And Baptists are busy making their church user-friendly by doing those very things. I talk to preachers who, if anybody ought to know better, they ought to know better. And I say, well, I preacher, what we were trying to accomplish here is to get our church in a position where if a lost person comes in, they'll feel comfortable. Dear Lord in heaven, the last thing in the world a lost person ought to feel in a Bible preaching church is comfortable. Now, wait a minute. They ought to know that everybody in the building loves them. But they ought to think they're having a cardiac arrest. They need oxygen. They need 911. They just need help. They ought to be anything but comfortable. And yet we're striving to make them feel at home. We've dumbed down our music. Now they can get drunk on Saturday night, come to church, hear the same music as listening to Sunday night. Mm -hmm. No question about it. 
It's just the way it is, you see. And it ought not be that way. Right. Well, you know, we, we're just making a few changes. Yeah, I know. The Bible says if our gospel be hid, it is hid from those that are lost. If our gospel be hid, if it be camouflaged. So in our churches, we've decided to start camouflaging stuff. And so we've, you, you know, we've camouflaged, camouflaged the pulpit because these old wooden pulpits are intimidating to people. And so we're going to get us a clear plexiglass where you can see all of my honky body. <laughs> you got a good view. We don't want to intimidate anyone with a pulpit. We want a, we want a speaker stand. We've camouflaged the Bible now. You can't recognize what half of them are reading out of. We've camouflaged the music. You know, singing that stuff. That's so strange. You know, the first time I staggered into a church, a Baptist church, they wasn't singing my kind of music. <laughs> no. They sang strange music. See, I, I've seen old Webb Pierce's There Stands the Glass, Fill It Up to the Brim. And they were singing There Is a Fountain Filled with Blood Drawn from Emmanuel's Veins. I never heard anything like that. I, you, you see, I was singing old Johnny Cash's Born to Lose, I've Lived My Life in Vain. They were singing something about victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. Never heard anything like that. Very, very strange. I was singing old Hank Williams, Your Cheating Heart. They were singing since Jesus came into my heart. Weird. They wouldn't change nothing for me. Nothing. Yeah. I was singing old Hank Thompson, City Lights. They were singing Heavenly Sunlight. They didn't do one blessed thing to accommodate me. And I went back the next Sunday. And the next Sunday. And I've been going every Sunday now for 56 years. And nobody ever has accommodated me. And I'm sure grateful for it. I am. This user friendly. Somebody said, well, we just want to be seeker sensitive. Now you dumb as a brick. <laughs> News flash for you. There are no seekers. What does the Bible say? None that seeketh after God. No, not one. You can just cut out your seeker-sensitive meetings, go back to preaching the Word, and everything will be just fine wherever you are. I say we need to stop it, drop the frills, drop the fancy type, drop the multicolors, and get back to writing a simple letter that can be read by simple people, and they know the complex truth of a Christ who died for them. So let's, let's just, before we go eat, Let's look at the letter. I just, I just want to remind you once while there's food out there so that you'll know that I'll know and you won't keep giving me those hand signs. You know? well, what does it mean when you do that out there? You know? Well, what do you want? Huh? Let's note number one, the writing of the letter. Notice verse 2. You are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men. Now I want you to understand something. 
When a man, woman, boy, girl gets saved, the letter changes. The letter changes right then. The margins are pulled in. The printing changes. Everything in us changes. See, what used to be disgusting suddenly becomes amazing. What used to be wretched suddenly becomes glorious. What used to be all messed up now is all lined up. And so the world says to us, loosen up. What's wrong with you? You don't have to be so picky about the margins. Just look worldly, talk worldly. Just write a worldly mess that makes no sense at all. And so now we got fellows who call themselves preachers sitting on little stools with a, with, with a gimme cap on crossways. You know they're dumb when they don't know where the front of the cap is. <laughs> They, they got the Nikes on. They've got their designer jeans on. They've got their pullover shirt on. And they look like a leftover from Saturday night. Mm. Amazing. Look worldly. Talk worldly. Write a worldly. And, and they say, nobody wants to listen to a man in a shirt and a tie and a suit. Well, I guess we ought to tell our news anchors that. We ought to let CNN know and Fox News know because those idiots still wearing suits. And, and nobody's going to listen to that. Crazy. Crazy. I took typing in high school almost 70 years ago. Somebody said, why? Because I thought it would be an easy subject. <laughs> I, thought, I, I thought, you know, I thought I'd go in and learn to type and just breeze the rest of the year. Mr. Barber, the typing teacher, changed my mind in just a few days. <laughs> we, 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 we got our typewriters assigned, you know, and we had Remingtons and Underwoods and Royals. I know that most of you don't have a clue what I'm talking about now. Wasn't a, there you go, got a wise man back there. Wasn't an electric cord in the place. Wasn't an electric plug in the place. And I'm, I'm there to learn how to type so I don't have to take one of those hard courses. Mm. It all started one way. Mr. Barber said, now, we're going to learn the home keys. I thought that was a dumb question because we didn't have no key at our home. <laughs> but anyway, we, we, we sat down to practice the home keys. I never got so sick of anything in all my life as I did the home keys. Every day for six weeks, the home keys. Uh, somebody said, Mr. Barber, we can type without knowing the home keys. He said, yeah, you can, but you can't type right. Hmm? Oh, yeah, you can write a letter without paying attention, but you can't write it right. And he said, you have to know the home keys. I hated it. To this good day, you ask me, what are the home keys? I cannot tell you. 
but when I sit down at the computer, my fingers go right to the home keys. They do. Someone says, well, you know what they are. I just told you, Dominic, I don't know what they are. I know this one, this one's J. Is that it? Please help me. That's the only one I know up here. But Mr. Barber got it in somewhere else, evidently, because my fingers will go right to it, you see. So we learned the home keys so we could type right. And, I, and everybody said, all right, let's start typing. He said, no, we're not ready to type yet. And I thought, oh, dear Lord, not more home keys. And he said, no, no. He said, now you have to learn to set your margins. Now, you don't know typewriters, so this is not going to mean a thing to you. But the typewriter, it had a carriage, and, and you, it had a little arm on over here, and you take that little arm and you hit it, and it goes back over here. And then you type, and it comes back over here, and then you hit it, and it goes back over there. You spend more time hitting and falling than you do typing. But that's the way it works. And he said, now we've got to set our margins. And on each, each end of it were little things that looked like little miniature clothespins. I'm sorry, you ladies don't know what clothespins are, do you? Why? Anyway, clothespin, right there. And he said, here's what you do. You, you close it up and you can slide it along that bar. And when you get to where the margin on it, you turn it loose and it locks in. And he said, then you get the other one and you bring it in where it's supposed to be and it locks in. And then he said, you've got a good, clear margin all the way down. And somebody said, but, but uh, Mr. Barber, we could get more words on the letter if you didn't have the margin. He said, yeah, but you couldn't read it near as well. It'd be messy. So we, we set the margins, you see, and uh, we're, ready, we're ready to type a letter. He said, no, you're not ready yet. He said, here's the deal, here's how it works. He said, when you set your margins, which means you can't go one place or the other. You can't go past those margins. And the, the thing on there to help you is this. When you start typing and you get five spaces from the margin, he said the strangest thing. He said a little bell will go off. A little bell will go off. Who ever heard of such thing? And so in our, in our ninth grade wisdom, we looked up like so. <laughs> And he said, that's when you start stopping and don't ever go past the little bell. So that's, that's your warning that you're getting too close to the edge. Don't type past the bells. Today, we've removed the bells in the name of religious liberty. We've taken them completely off. We're wise enough to know where to stop. We don't need a warning to keep us in line. And so individual freedom and liberality and the letters are just running everywhere today. And they're quick to puff up their chest and say, we are saved, we are free in Christ Jesus. And the Bible says, for brethren, you have been called unto liberty 
freedom. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. We are free. We are free not to sin if we choose to. But we are not free to live any sort of way that we decide we want to live, you see. And so the writing of the letter, I want you to understand, so I know you know this, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but just in case you scooted your bell over a little bit, just in case you're spreading the margins, I want you to understand something about this religious freedom and liberty. I am more free with my shoelaces tied my belt on, my tie on, my coat on, and my hair combed. I am all that frizzy-headed bunch of half-naked boys that call themselves preachers today. I'm just as free as free can be. And look, the world is reading a letter from that no standards, no conviction, no margins, bell gone crowd, and it ought not be. The writing of the letter. Number two, the work of a letter. The work of a letter. What is a letter for? Well, it's really a deep theological thing. A word is to a letter is to communicate something. A letter is to tell us something. I get letters. You do too. You know, I have no idea what many of them mean. They hint and imply, you know, things like that. But uh, you can't really ever tell. I'm an evangelist. I'll talk about evangelist letters, you know. For, uh, any other evangelist in here? Not that it'll admit it, I didn't think so. <laughs> I get letters from them. Your pastor gets letters from us. They, they'll always go, they don't always, 90% of the time, they say this, our bus broke down. Engine blowed a piston, transmission dropped, all six tires blew out, and the rear ends out. Please pray for our bus. Pray for your bus? Pray for your bus? What does that mean? Then I figured out that's code. That's code for buy me a new bus. But you have to know code to read it. If, I, if you want to write me a letter, don't write it in code. Tell me what you want me to know. You know? See, a letter, first of all, it ought to be clear. You know, it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be loud. It just needs to be what God would say. I get all kind of letters. I get love letters. Well, I hadn't. No, scratch that one. I get legal letters. Yeah. Friendly letters, yeah. Angry letters, yeah. Letters of joy, yeah. Letters of grief. I get all kind of letters. Every one of them have a purpose, and that is to tell us something. Now, all this instant message stuff, leave out all the conjunctions and all of them, all of those little abbreviations. Yeah, I don't get it. You know, <laughs> that, that doesn't communicate to me. Right? I'm sorry, it just doesn't, you know. Keep it simple so folks can understand it. See, most of the folks that I deal with, you don't have to get too deep. Matter of fact, if you're talking about the work of dynamite, you don't have to say it exploded or it imploded. You can just say it blowed up. <laughs> and my crowd will understand what you're talking about. Sure, every time. 
It needs to be clear. Keep it simple. Number two, it needs to be consistent. Some preachers I'm with one year, they're writing one letter. I go back the next year and they're writing a different letter. You know, I don't want to go through my life saying I've been wrong every year. I've been wrong. I'm still hunting what's right. Oh, it needs to be consistent. I like to be around those who knew the truth when they started and they're still writing the same letter today they were when they started. And it ought to be not only a clear letter and a consistent letter, it ought to be a convicting letter. See, I'm still of the conviction that when somebody's life has been changed, it's not hard to see it. Man gets saved, folks know it. Your friends know it, your co-workers know it, your family knows it. But today, folks are writing a letter and saying, well, yeah, we were changed, but we got bored with it. So we're going back out there where we come from. I, I, I'm not going to buy into that. It doesn't make any sense. See, I read in the Bible about a fellow named Lazarus, and Lazarus died. And wasn't nobody happy with it. The sisters wasn't. The disciples wasn't. Jesus sort of borderline about it. He really was, you know, because the disciples kept saying, well, you know, we're going to see about it. And Jesus said, he's dead, he's dead and I'm glad. It's in your Bible. I know there's some words after it, but it's not as effective as when you cut it off right there. <laughs> <laughs> That's the modern version. <laughs> and so Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. You can read the story and they, they back at the little house now and they having it was a supper. It had to be a celebration supper. I mean, sitting over here is Lazarus. Sitting over here is Mary. She looks over there and sees her brother. Last time she saw him, it was just his dead body, cold, decaying. Something begins to stir in her heart. She looks over here and there sits Jesus Christ and it gets out of hand then. She goes in the house and gets that alabaster box of ointment, comes out and anoints the head of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful day. And so there's excitement and joy and declaration being made. And Lazarus is no longer dead. He's alive and how happy he is. But he gets up the next morning and puts his clothes on and starts out. And one of them says, where are you going, Lazarus? And he said, I think I'm going back to the graveyard. I really liked it out there. Give me a break. <laughs> If he liked the graveyard, he's still dead. Man gets saved, Jesus Christ comes into his heart. No, I heard, I, I heard Lazarus singing. Oh look, what I traded for a mansion. Oh look, what I'm leaving behind. Oh look, who will be there to greet me when I enter God's sweet paradise. I'm leaving behind all my troubles. I'm leaving behind all my cares. I traded them all for a mansion 
that Jesus has gone to prepare. And you think he's going back? No. And these folks that are going back might have missed it on the first round altogether. We need to understand that, and preachers need to understand that. And, and, and we need to quit kicking out the margins and quit giving that broader view and just write a letter that says we were changed, we are still changed, we are going to stay changed. Don't be running back and forth. Mr. Barber told us, he said, now a good letter, you bring the margins in. Get a good wide margin on both sides where, where you won't be, everybody can see clear space. And he said, then, you know, get, get about four sentences per paragraph and three or four paragraphs, a good salutation. Said sometimes you want to write a nice love letter. And for preachers, sometimes you might want to write a nice love letter to the lost and the dying world. <clears throat> but when the liberal sneaks in and the apostate sneaks in, block her up, buddy. Bold print, underlined, Amen. block letters, Sign it, but don't sign it with love. And let's get things back like they ought to be. Amen. Right now, tonight, be a good time to be sure the margins are set right Amen. and the little bell's still ringing. Amen. Last thought. The writing of the letter, the work of the letter. Now, you know, in the writing of the letter, it's interesting you get two different shots at it here. So let's look at the work of the letter. What's the work of the letter? To communicate something. And now then, the writer. The writer. Look if you would at verse 3 of our text. Verse 3. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in the fleshly tablets of the heart, tables of the heart. It's quite interesting when you pay attention to it. In verse 3, it says pretty simple that we are the epistles of Christ. The epistle of Christ. But, but, but in verse 2, he said, you are my epistle. It's no contradiction. The letter is our product, but Christ did it, not in ink, but on the tables of the heart. See? Sometimes I think our letters get so messed up because all some folks have is what some preacher told them. And real Christianity is the inside job from the heart out. And if you hadn't had that thing written on your heart, you still got some work to get done yet. And we need to understand that, you see. When you, all you have is a mental knowledge, you're in bad shape. No real content. Christianity is an inside job. Reality comes from the inside. When I started the first grade, somebody said, why didn't you go to Head Start? Twarn't no Head Start. Somebody said, why didn't you go to kindergarten? Twarn't no kindergarten. We really didn't need one. Mama taught me how to blow my nose and tie my shoes. What do you need kindergarten for? 
So I started the first grade straight out of the country. No, no, we had no water, no running water, uh, no electricity. You know, I'd never seen a pencil nor a book. No one ever read to me. You know, I, I'm going to school, man. It's exciting. Nobody in my in my family had uh, ever finished school. Somebody said, "Did anybody go to college?" I just told you, they didn't know I'm finished school. <laughs> and uh, and and here I am in school, first grade, right out of the country, and. Uh, we were assigned our little tables and chairs, just a little desk and a little short-legged chair, and I sat down there with my overalls on. The, the teacher said, these are pencils, and this is paper, all new to me. And then, uh, but we did, I need to tell all you techies something, we had tablets way back then. <laughs> They, they were they were not Apple. They were Big Chief. And so we had a Big Chief tablet, rough paper, number two pencil, and Mrs. O'Beer, my first grade teacher, said the strangest thing. She she had done a lot of something on the blackboard, and she said, "Now this is writing." Okay, and then she pointed around the top of the, of, of the room, and all the way around the top of the room, there were little placards that had stuff on them, and she said, now that's the alphabet. That's the big A, and that's the little A, and so, and she said to us, we're going to learn the alphabet and learn to write, and I said to her, Good luck with that. <laughs> Can you imagine what a task the woman had, you see? It's an amazing thing. We're going to learn to write. And she said, we're going to learn arithmetic. And she said, we're going to learn spelling. Well, I'm still out with the alphabet, and we're going through all of that now. And then she said to I, she was using words I didn't understand then, but I remember them. She said, and what we teach will be absolutes. Are you paying attention? We're going to teach you absolutes. Said, uh, when we get to arithmetic, two plus two will always equal four. That is an absolute. I wish whoever came up with new math understood what an absolute was. She said, now spelling, when we do spelling, cat will always be C-A-T. It will never be K-A-T. She said, laugh out loud, it will always be L-A-U-G-H-O-U-T-L-O-U-D. It will never be L-O-L. That, that was back in the last century, way back there. Amazing. Absolutes. And so we started, or she thought we started learning the alphabet. <laughs> Let me rephrase it. She started teaching the alphabet. Some of us wasn't catching up. 
I had my big chief tablet. You folks that have a real education, remember them? You, you fold that lid back, and it had real wide lines, real bold. And right in the middle of that wide line, there was a little fine line. And so you wrote your capital letters in the big one, and your little letters in the little one. She said, it's simple. I said, yeah. <laughs> so we're trying. You know. I didn't do well. Can you believe it? I didn't do well. Practice and practice and practice. Miss Obeer would walk around through classroom, and she would peer over the shoulder at your work. She'd go by some of those smart aleck girls, and she'd say, oh, that's so good, sweetheart. God bless, you know, just, yeah. She'd come to me, and she wouldn't, she didn't say nothing. <laughs> you know, she, she just, I could hear her trying to breathe as she looked at it. And she, 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 she'd come up behind me, and finally she'd come up behind me, and she'd take her left hand, and she'd put it on my shoulder over here. And she'd reach around me with her other hand. And she'd put it on my hand. And she said, now, let's, L-E-T apostrophe S, let us write our alphabet. She didn't tell me to. She looked. She already knew I couldn't. <laughs> you, you need to be paying careful attention. Because I'm about to tell you in a minute how we can do what we can't do. She knew I couldn't. She said, let's, let's write our alphabet. And I said, okay. And so I waited for let's to kick in and nothing happened. <laughs> and she said, you go ahead. And so she had me start. And, and I was starting with that big A. And as long as I was doing all right, she just left her hand there and, and, and stayed hovered over me. And when I first started heading over that margin, I just feel a little pressure. She never did slap my hand. She never did box me on the ear and say, you dummy, you're not ever going to learn. I just feel a little pressure. And she got me back inside the line. We go through our A's and our B's and our C's. And she said, now you practice. You, you keep practicing. You're doing good. She, what she told me then, said, you're doing good. I wasn't any better than when I started. But I was pleasing Miss Obeer because I let her guide me. Every once in a while after that, I'd raise my hand for help. When I really didn't need any help now, I just liked her hand on mine because <laughs> I felt like she cared about me. I like to smell her perfume because I never smelled anybody smell good before. <laughs> and she'd come back and she'd work with me. She'd guide me and she'd direct me. And I suspect more today than we need another missions conference. We need to smell the fragrance of God's holiness again feel his pressure on our life as he guides Amen. and directs and leads us. And today, if we're writing anything worth reading, 
It is because the hand of God is on your life. Now, you, you may be writing a lot of stuff, but if you're writing anything worth reading, it's because God is putting his hand on your life, putting just enough influence to make sure the letter's what it ought to be. So instead of all this redefining and all this looking for new stuff and all these changes and all this margin bumping and all this pettiness, why can't we just say, oh dear God, I'm making such a mess out of everything. Please guide me. Put your hand on my hand. Let me smell the fragrance of your holiness again. Remember, the letter is still being written and it's still being read. And how long has it been since you really felt God's presence in your life? How long has it been since you had clear direction from God? How long since you let Christ write your epistle for you? Why not tonight? More than you need another commitment day. More than you need the breath of life. You need to position yourself. You just need to raise your little hand and say, God, I can't do this by myself. And he'll gladly, he'll gladly put his arms around you. And he'll say, let's write our letter. And you'll be proud of your letter then. Would you bow your head, please? Every head is bowed. Every eye is closed. Christians are praying. Thank you for joining us today. For more audio or video content, you can visit our website at parksidebaptist.org.